My mother was a woman of tremendous integrity. My mother was curious, protective, unflappable, loyal, complicated, powerful, honest, lyrical. She is devoted, resilient, dazzling, giving, extraordinary. She talked about the brutality of her, her mother, but also the brutality of uh, particularly white males in the South. Uh, she was very much against physically harming and injuring, particularly children. She broke the cycle. Ask Mama, she'll know what to do. This is Our Mothers Ourselves. I'm your host, Katie Hafner. I've always been fascinated by mothers who rise above impossible circumstances to provide loving, nurturing homes for their children. Today's episode is about a woman who did all that and much more. She's Flora Horn. Flora was a devoted mother of six. She raised her children in St. Louis, Missouri, at the height of the Jim Crow era, and she instilled in her kids the value of education, which she considered the path to independence and prosperity. I recently sat down with two of her daughters, Dr. Malika Horn and her younger sister Gwen, who works at the Missouri History Museum. Malika is an academic and a journalist. She's the author of the memoir, Mother Wit, Exalting Motherhood While Honoring a Great Mother. Malika and Gwen, thank you so much for coming on to Our Mothers Ourselves to talk to me about your mother, Flora Horn. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. I have read the book, which is quite something. It's called Mother Wit, Exalting Motherhood While Honoring a Great Mother. And uh, Malika, it sounds like you wrote it with a lot of help from Gwen. Is that right? That's right. So what I'd like to do um, before we get to the who, what, where, when, how, and then later the why <laughs> of, your, of your mother's life is um, ask each of you a question. Malika, I'll start with you. If you were to describe your mother using just one word, what would that word be? Love. Mm. And Gwen? That's hard, but I'd say determined. Uh huh. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Two different facets of one person. So let's start at the beginning. Tell me about your mom, where she was born, when, what it was like for her when she was growing up. She lived in a, a rural area called Starkville, Mississippi. And they were sort of like, I guess they were sharecroppers. Uh, I believe, as Gwen sees more of the historian, calls it debt pinage, where they were always uh, scratching out a living. It interfered a lot with her school because she and, and, and many of her sisters and brothers, especially her cousin, they were very obsessed with getting an education because they thought that that was the way to do better in life. And what year was she born? She was born in 1916. And so this was in the, in the Deep South. Yeah, Mississippi. And her own mother, um, tell me about her mother. Her mother was the opposite of her. We got a chance to to meet her and know her, but she didn't have the kind of warm and supportive relationship with my mother in particular. Uh, now, my mother looked just like her, and I can verify that because I saw the similarities but for some reason, she was not, my mother was not her favorite child. And so she physically abused her a lot. 
But it's incredibly striking that the scene that you paint about the physical abuse. And I wanted to ask you if you would be open to reading a couple of paragraphs that start on page six. Page six. Her mother would beat her unmercifully for the slightest missteps, like breaking a glass. Starting at nine years old, her mother would get thick, coarse rope and soak it in a lye solution to make the rope thicker and rougher. And then she would commence to flail. She beat all her children, not just Flora, but Flora seemed to suffer the brunt of her mother's cruelty. She would make Flora put her head between her legs and with her naked bottom turned up, she would beat and beat and beat until she got tired. And of course, Many black parents beat their children. It was their primary form of discipline, quick, brutal, and sure. Some blame the legacy of slavery for the continuing brutality. Slave owners would beat slaves. Then black parents would beat their children, and so on and so on. Frederick Douglass said, quote, everybody in the South seemed to want the privilege of beating some." somebody else. Family violence is intergenerational and victims of violence can become perpetrators. Thank you for reading that. Was it hard to read and was it hard to write? Not now because, you know, I had to write and rewrite and edit and then I heard them so much. Mm -hmm. And that kind of intergenerational sort of violence and brutality uh, it sounds like your mother, as she was growing up, she must have been determined not to carry that forward. She broke the cycle. She said it over and over again. She talked about the brutality of her, her mother, but also the brutality of uh, particularly white males in the South. Mm-hmm. And uh, she was very much against physically harming and injuring, particularly children. It's just, uh, it's unimaginable to me. And that's so, all they knew. So when your mom was growing up, did, did they stay in Mississippi? They started moving, as I said, in the 1930s, I believe. And uh, by the time we were maybe adolescents or teenagers, they all had moved, including my, my grandparents. My grandparents moved to St. Louis as well. Mm-hmm. And was that because they wanted to get out of the Deep South? Absolutely. It was, it was too much. And my, my grandfather was, he, my mother told me this, I believe, he was so afraid that his sons would be hurt because they were basically lynching black men for the slightest discretion. And he, he was so afraid of them being hurt. He was ready to go finally. Let's talk about your mother's schooling and how she met your dad. My mother was very smart. One of the things that my uncle, her brother, told us is that when she was very young, she was known in the community as being apt. That's the word he used, A-P-T. And that even adults would come to her to have her like fill out forms for them or interpret documents for them. She was just, she just had native intelligence. And she had a real thirst for learning and for education. And she always wanted to go to school. 
And I remember it was very frustrating for her because her mother would like keep her out of school to do things like wash or do housework. My mother was was dark skinned. And at that time, colorism was very strong. And it was felt that her her mother felt that it should be her her sister who was lighter skinned who should have been the smart one and she should be the one that was educated and not necessarily my mother. She wanted it for herself and she wanted it for us. You know, it sounds like you're saying two interesting things that might be separate but related, um, which is that she had a thirst for knowledge and she loved to learn and somehow innately, she understood the value of education. Oh, absolutely. She did. She said, if you want to do better in life, if you want to succeed in life, you have to be educated. You have to get an education. Mm -hmm. And she always lauded people who were educated to the point where sometimes I would go, God, I wish she stopped talking about educated people so much. (laughs) When she would tell stories at the end, usually the, the lesson was that's why you have to get an education. She, she was a, a wonderful teacher in that regard. And like Malika said, she always told us stories. So, you know, I remember just her talking to us, telling us stories. She talked to us a lot. It was, she wasn't the kind of uh, parent that just barked commands and said, you do this and do this. She would talk to us like we were almost like her equals. And she'd tell us stories. I grew up with a storyteller. <laughs> you think you learned a lot of your Bible from her? Absolutely. We always had to go to church. <laughs> she sent us every Sunday. And one of the things I said about my mother, she sacrificed a lot. And she always wanted to make sure that we had, you know, nice clothes, that, you know, our hair was done, that we always looked nice. But she, it came at a price. Because she couldn't go to a hairdresser because she didn't have the money. She couldn't uh, have nice clothes. So she felt like she couldn't go to church because of that. Uh, But she wanted to make sure that we went. Let's get her into the romance with your dad. (laughs) Tell me how that unfolded. My father's wife had died. And they had two teenage daughters. And... Uh, It seems that because my mother was such a a good housekeeper, number one, she was a great cook, great housekeeper, great domestic goddess, as they say. Uh, I I think that he married her so that uh, he could have someone to take care of his children and continue to raise them. And she was a lot younger than he was. Yeah, he he was like 18 years older than her. And I, you know, maybe... Nowadays, it wouldn't make much of a difference, but I think back then, being 23 and him being like 41, it, uh, the power relationship was definitely unequal. Mm-hmm. And it's a completely different set of experiences, too. Yeah, well, he was from um, Columbus, Mississippi. So some of us, or some of our relatives think they may have known about each other because Columbus is right near Starkville. And uh, he had also, and his family, had also moved to St. Louis during the Great Migration. So they get married. Your mom's 23. Did she start having kids right off the bat? I believe so. And so who, so how many of you are there? Six of us. She had eight children, two died. So 
She raised six. And did they die in infancy? Uh, ch- childbirth, yes. Oh. Wow. Okay, it's a lot of kids. There's a lot of kids. Yeah. A lot of, ba- a lot of babies at one time. Uh, with myself and with Gwen and Gerald, we were like a year apart. And she tells a story about us all crying at the same time, all pulling on her while she was trying to wash and cook. And she was saying how stressful it was. Wow. So what is your earliest memory of her as a mother? And how did you experience her maternal love? I can say that in different ways, she let me know and she let all of us know that she loved us. That was very important because during that time, you know, for African-American children, it looked like nobody cared about you. But she made sure in many different ways, not only just by saying it, uh, as Gwen said, in terms of making sure we were dressed nice. And I've only met one person and he was a chef who could cook better than her. We had the most nutritious and delicious meals that I have ever had. And I think Good meals also is an expression of love. You, you have to cook with love, and, and, and then that love comes through the food. She was a great cook. Yeah, and I wonder, did, do you know if her mom cooked too? Gwen, do you know that, about that? From what she used to tell us when we were growing up, that food was really simple. They were poor. I remember talking about hot water cornbread, which is the sort of the... the I guess the cheapest way to make cornbread, you just make it with hot water and cornmeal and boiled greens. I I don't think that she had lavish meals because they were, they were poor. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Simple, simple food. Yeah. And, um, okay. Your dad, it sounds like he was not there a lot and she was on a budget. Mm Mm-hmm. And she was on a budget that was actually stripped down because he kept money for himself. He was very well-dressed, right? Yes, very well-dressed. In fact, when he died, a lot of the male relatives came over and raided his closet. And did your mom ever kind of look at him and shake her head? And, or did she kind of know her place around him? This power, you talk about this power structure between the two of them. The only thing I can remember is that she did ask him since he he went to work, came home, had dinner, and then got dressed and went out again. And I remember my mother saying she asked him one time to take her out sometime, and he told her she didn't look good enough. Oh, because she had sacrificed, as Gwen said, <laughs> right. in her hair. She couldn't get her hair done. Right. Yeah. Oh. So it was a no-win situation for her. Like a lot of women. Like a lot of women. Wow. Uh, and, but she put up with it. But she had to. And, you know, we asked her about that, and she said she just wanted to keep the family together. So when you guys were growing up, and we're coming into kind of the civil rights era, and Martin Luther King, um, I think you have a passage in there about how you went to see him when he came to St. Louis. She went, and I believe, was it at Central Baptist Church? And I think this was the lead up to national tour to promote the the March on Washington. And so she did get a chance to see him. 
Wow. And do you remember when she came home, what she said? She was enthralled and just told us how, how amazing this man was. He was really one of her top heroes. Uh, so did you all go off to college, as was her wish? Of course. My older sister first. Oh, she must have been so proud. She was. I remember her saying, I, I wanted you all to be a success. But she said, I didn't think you all would go this far. And this was <laughs> before, I know before my, I got a PhD. And I don't know, my, my older brother went to law school. So he became a, a, a corporate attorney and then a judge. So I don't know how far we had gotten along. But at that time, she thought we were very successful. As you were. And your dad, I forgot to ask you, what was his job? And what was his education like? He was a teamster, truck driver for a concrete company most of the time. But he got blackballed because he got in a fight with his boss uh, and um, a white man. In the, in the South, he probably would have been summarily lynched. But he was just blackballed for four years. And that, those were four very stark, lean years for us. So tell me about what life was like for you then as a family. We didn't feel it too much because my mother was so resourceful. But I remember my father having to drive a cab. Uh, he bought a pickup truck and would, you know, do small errands and work for people. It, it was it was tough. My sister got a job. My older sister got a job. I'm sure my mother had a lot of worries and my father. And is this the time when you were living in the Mill Creek neighborhood? Uh, Mill Creek Valley. It was uh, the largest black community in the city of St. Louis. There were basically two large black communities. One was called Ville, and that's where the more middle-class blacks lived. And Mill Creek was more working class. And there were about 20,000 people in Mill Creek. So it was the largest black neighborhood in St. Louis. And let me just say that there were a lot of important black institutions in Mill Creek as well. It wasn't just a neighborhood of, of poverty. The first commercial building built in the city of St. Louis by black people was located in Mill Creek. The two black newspapers were located in Mill Creek. So it was a very, very important black community. Uh, the problem, as far as the city fathers were concerned, is that Mill Creek was prime property. It was right between St. Louis University on the west and downtown St. Louis on the east. And the city fathers, and they were fathers, <laughs> felt that this community of Black people was really a blight on the city of St. Louis, and they wanted that property. So they started pitching an urban renewal project as early as 1948. There was a, this relentless drum beat in the newspapers that basically was propaganda. In fact, they called it the city's number one eyesore. They didn't even call it the Black community. Just That was the name, number one eyesore. There were 20,000 people living in Mill Creek. They moved everybody out. They tore down every single building but four, every single residence. And in fact, the NAACP <laughs> said it wasn't urban renewal. It was Negro removal. That it was just a, a ploy to get rid of black people. So it, it, was pretty, it was pretty traumatic. 
And so where did everyone go? Well, they were scattered. Some went into public housing. A lot were uh, moved west to the west part of the city and to the north part of the city. And one thing that you write in the book is that it was there was a tremendous sense of community and that the buildings themselves, that there were there were houses just like that in a predominantly white neighborhood. And so why tear these down? And that your mom had some real pride of place in Mill Creek, right? These were buildings with beautiful architecture. St. Louis is known for its architecture. They, I don't think we're as proud of, of, of the buildings here as we should be. But in a, a neighborhood called Lafayette Square, which at the time was mainly low-income whites, some blacks, they decided to preserve that, but not uh, these beautiful buildings that were just as nice as Lafayette Square. So was she unable to regain or to duplicate a sense of community once this displacement happened? I think we all struggled because we moved into a middle-class white and black. It was just starting to be uh, integrated with middle-class blacks. And that's the first time we ran up against class tension. We knew about race because of my mother, but uh, it was the, the class it's particularly for other African-Americans that kind of shocked me and shocked us that um, they kind of were looked down their nose on us. Let me just say in our own neighborhood in Mill Creek, we are pretty much pillars of the community. <laughs> mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, my mother, my parents were homeowners. My mother was very involved in schools and the PTAs and, you know, she was very active. And then we moved into this, neighborhood where we, I think one of our neighbors referred to us as rat pickers. They didn't even know us, but they knew we were moving from Mill Creek. And so as far as they were concerned, we were lower class and that's the way we were initially treated. And what they did in the newspaper, they showed our old house. By then we had moved and so the windows had been broken and all around, some of the houses had already been torn down. So it looked like we were living in a, torn, a war-torn area. And then it, they put us next to our bungalow that we moved to, into in North St. Louis, I think, to show that they were helping us to move into better housing. Do you know how your mom reacted to this? She must have been furious. We were all disheartened by it, that that's the kind of introduction we had into the neighborhood. But it sounds like your mom did not, she was not a bitter woman. Mm-mm. Not at all. She was very mild-mannered and would, would really cry at the drop of a hat. Not big, bawling tears, but she would weep. But she was very sensitive. And sentimental, I bet. My mother was well-liked. She got along with everybody. Yeah, you know? she, it, I, it sounds like she made friends wherever she went. Yeah, she did. She she made friends wherever she went. People confided in her. You know, she accepted everybody. She didn't hold a grudge. And I think that's what made her so likable. I think she honestly, she honestly liked people. Yeah. <laughs> like, it, I think she was just wise. <laughs> it's funny because the two words you chose at the beginning, love, which is so clear. It's I can tell throughout this whole conversation. And also determined, you know, you think of determined 
against all odds, but determined just on so many levels. My mother, who I usually thought of as being very nice, very kind, soft-spoken, determined, persistent. She was no pushover. In our neighborhood, you know, we would have white insurance men, different white salesmen coming to the neighborhood, and they would always call the women by their first names. My mother demanded that they call her Mrs. Horn. She was not going to accept that because she grew up in the South, that that was a way of disrespecting a Black woman and a Black man. You didn't call them Mr. and Mrs. You called them by their first names. Now, they, you had to call them Mr. and Mrs., but they didn't have to call you that. And my mother insisted on that, and they did it. So later in life, did she have a bunch of grandchildren who she could heap that love on, or did she have a good, a good later life? Until she became an invalid, but Gwen's daughter, Heather, she, she spent a lot of time with Heather, and I think my uh, two nephews, the children of my older sister, Mary, she helped to, to raise them. So they have, I think, a big influence, don't you think, Gwen, from, from my mother being a grandmother? In fact, Heather wrote a little part in the back of the book about being the grandchild. Yeah, and that was probably really important that she got to know her grandmother. Heather was very close to my mother. And my mother really loved Heather. Uh, she loved all of her grandchildren. They were very close. I think, well, like most grandparents, Heather and my mother were probably closer than me and my mother. <laughs> mm, yeah, that's, well, that's common. So what year did she die? I think she died in 1980. Wow. So she didn't get to live to see any of the, the really great stuff, which was Obama getting elected, and now this was Kamala Harris. What do you think she would oh. say? Oh, my God. She'd be over the moon. She'd be ecstatic. But then she would see that it took a lot of hard work yeah. of a lot of people. They're standing on the shoulders of a lot of people. And one of the things I, I wanted to, to say is that the, the family is the most basic of institutions. And I don't think it's recognized enough. And women are really the heads of these institutions. And family was super important to your mom. That's my sense. Yeah. So who was with her when she died? Uh, she was in the hospital for some really routine surgeries. And I remember I was going to visit her to check on her at the hospital. And I was on the elevator and the, there was a priest on the elevator and a doctor. And they were talking and I was just in the back. They weren't paying any attention to me. They got off the elevator. I got off the elevator. And then the priest, I saw the priest was walking ahead of me and he went to my mother's room. And I was going, why is the priest going in my mother's room? <laughs> And as soon as I got in, he turned to me and he said, your mother has expired. I remember he said the word expired. That always stuck in my mind. So it was, it was a shock because we thought she'd just be in the hospital for a few days and then out. But that didn't happen. Oh, I'm so sorry. What a terrible story. Do you remember last conversations you had with her that were meaningful? Well, I remember... Uh, saying to Gwen and to Heather, I said, Mother, when, when we were little, she always hugged us and talked baby gibberish and told us how much she loved us. And I said, 
I want to start hugging her more when she was in the hospital and letting her know how much we love her. And, and, and I saw her responding. We all did it. And she was really responding to that. Mm. Wow, that's, that's beautiful. I want to get back to this whole idea of, you know, what, what, what gave her great happiness, clearly seeing her kids do well. She loved to cook. Anything else that she would just do for fun? You know, I always say, you know, I never saw my mother getting dressed up and going anywhere. <laughs> she was always at home, always. And she just, I, I, I don't think she had much pleasure outside of home. Part of it was because, like I said, she she had to even curtail going to the church, which was a, a great outlet for her. And when she got after we got older, she she started going back to church again and got very, very involved in the church. But she was so tied to that house and to us. She devoted her life to her children. And I think she sacrificed so much for her children. And at the time, I didn't realize it because I was a kid. I thought that's what mothers were supposed to do. Um, mm-hmm. I would say that my mother, one of the things, she, she loved the blues, Oh, yeah. My mother was very, very religious. And some religious people would say, well, you don't listen to the blues. That's devil's music. My mother loved the blues. And I remember her listening to the radio. She would listen to gospel music. and She would listen to blues. And she would sing along. So she liked to sing. And she liked music. Wow. Nice. Nice. So it sounds like if Flora Horn had a legacy, it might be the the people she left behind and how proud she is to see where they are now. Does that ring true to you? That's the importance of great parenting. Great mothers, great fathers, but particularly great mothers, because they have the lion's share of the child rearing and influencing the children. And and then those children have children. And those stories and the, the example that she set for us I believe it continues through generations. And so I think that she has really, not just her, I wanted to really recognize all these great mothers, all these great parents, that um, it's very important to secure your child's future and give them the best upbringing you possibly can. Gwen, is there anything you want to say to add to that? I was just thinking about, you know, the fact that my mother was, in a, a lot of ways, she was very untraditional. Like, I remember her telling us all the time, she wanted her daughters to be educated. And she used to always tell us, you have to be able to take care of yourself. You've got to be able to take care of yourself. That's why you have to get educated. So she never said, you got to get married and get a husband and, and so you have somebody to take care of you. No. <laughs> I don't remember her ever telling me that. It was always... You have to get an education so you can get a decent job so you can support yourself and take care of yourself. And, and may I add to that? I remember her saying, have your own. Don't be like me. Have your own. Have your own means of taking care of yourself. Exactly. And that's what we did. Well, on that note, I would like to say thank you to both of you so much. Malika and Gwen Horn for talking to me about your mom. You're welcome.
Thank you. And that's it this week for Our Mothers Ourselves. Our theme music was composed and performed by Andrea Perry. Paula Mangin is our artist in residence. Sophie McNulty is our associate producer. And Alice Hudson is the show's producer. Please visit us at OurMothersOurselves.com and contribute the one word that best describes your mother to the site's mother word cloud. That's OurMothersOurselves.com. Our Mothers Ourselves is a production of Odredex Studios in San Francisco. I'm your host, Katie Hafner. Have a great week, everyone, and stay safe.